0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Campbell Academy podcast, Nothing But The Tooth, with me, Colin Campbell. This is the podcast that explores atypical pathways to success for people that we admire and look up to, and I hope that you really enjoy this episode. Today I'm going to be interviewing Sarah Symington.
1: Well, it was the start of being discovered, is probably how I'd phrase it. Um, there was a little bit of a blip and before being discovered, and I think it was a combination of... I was in full-time work, doing full-time shift work. I was training myself. I didn't have a coach. I was battering myself, being brutally honest with you, and I didn't have enough recovery. I ended up with overtraining syndrome or chronic fatigue, for want of a better word. It took quite a while, I suppose, in some ways, to have it sort of diagnosed and something named. This is what I was, yeah, I suppose, experiencing.
0: I'm allowed to say that I first met her in a sort of professional capacity when she was looking for some help. And I was a little bit starstruck and taken aback because the individual that I'm going to introduce to you is a two-time Olympian Olympic cyclist from both the Sydney Olympics and the Olympics in Athens. And so she was in the middle of really cycling when it just started to kick off and really, really make things happen. And she also was perhaps instrumental in some of that, as you'll find out in the podcast itself. She subsequently, though, has gone on to achieve amazing things in 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 sports management and, and performance directorship. Most notably, I suppose, being the performance director for the Roses, um, the England uh, netball team, who won gold at the Commonwealth Games and the Gold Coast in Australia. She's had many different jobs in performance sports management, but she is currently... Olympic Performance Director for Olympic and Paralympic uh, results for British cycling. She is an incredibly gifted and successful individual who is extraordinarily humble, and I was really keen when we were doing these new versions of the podcast to get her on as one of the early guests because she has such an extraordinary story to tell, and so I really hope you enjoy listening. So hello, everybody. So we have episode four, Nancy's telling me, right? Episode four. And today I'm going to be speaking to Sarah Symington, so which is an, uh, a huge pleasure, stroke, privilege. Sweet Sarah. So I've asked Tara before she came on here whether it was okay to ask to talk about anything. She said yes. So at the risk of having to wipe us out. So we've known each other in a professional capacity because I met you in Loughborough and um, about 2010.
1: Yeah? Yeah, I think it was.
0: 2010. And because um, I went down to help somebody in a practice there and, and we met there. And, and, and so I was kind of quite starstruck at that first at the meeting unit over that because we've met you for like a couple of appointments things and um, so meeting somebody famous who'd operated at such a high level of sport and at that stage you were working up to work in the london 2012 olympics which we'll come back to in a little while and then just connected back again sort of professionally and stuff after that after the period passed mm. and then and then we started to ask you to do some bits and bobs didn't we and you've just helped us out by doing some inspirational chit chat about stuff and and you've just like gone from Level to level to level through the years. It's been amazing to watch. So we're still dead grateful you come and chat to us. So hello, welcome.
1: Hello. And um, look, thanks. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So what we do here and this, we're trying to explore people's backgrounds as to how they get to a position of inspiration of other people, right? So atypical pathways usually, but what makes inspirational people tick? How they got to where they went to try and give people hints and tips to, to brighten up their otherwise dull lives and make them a little bit better and like themselves a bit more. So... There's only one bit of research here, because I have to get my phone out to just read this bit. So I'll start by asking you to tell me about Maracaibo. Is that how (laughs) I pronounce it?
1: That is how you pronounce it. Yeah. So tell me
0: about Maracaibo. Where is it?
1: Uh, Well, um, in Venezuela. Yeah, northwest Venezuela. More than I knew. Um, And that's where I was born. Um,
0: How long did you live there?
1: Three years. Three years.
0: Do you know what it's famous for? Mm, no. No. All right, good. Coffee? So have done my internet Coffee? research. No, oil, actually. Oil. Oil, but it also lightning. So the lake at Maracaibo apparently is one of the places where people go to lightning watch because they get such amazing lightning shows. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're South American by birth.
1: I am. So you could have
0: represented Venezuela. I could. At cycling or triathlon. I now. could.
1: <laughs> or any other sport that I chose.
0: <laughs> and so you moved back to UK when you were... Yeah, right. when
1: we came back for about a year when I was three and my sister was one. Right. Um, I, I, and then kind of went and travelled various other countries, ranging from Dubai to Iran just before the revolution to Singapore. Was that
0: parents' work then?
1: Oh. Yeah, and now that you've asked me the question about Marrakaib and what it's known for, it kind of explains a lot. Um, was, your, was
0: your parents uh, in oil? Yeah. 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 And my that's dad, why they were in Iran? Yeah. Jeez, that's what age were you when you were in Iran?
1: Oh uh, gosh, um, eight eight years old. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, that that was quite an interesting year. Actually, we went. To, we lived in a place called Arwaz, which was two hundred miles south of Tehran. Both of us went to American schools. Um, but probably the memory I've that kind of really kicks in is about how I suppose when the Shah got overthrown, mm-hmm. um, we ended up going traveling back up to Tehran and living on my dad's office floor for a week. Literally going to the airport every night to try and get a flight out of the country.
0: Blimey, it's incredible, eh? Yeah. So, uh, this is, see, this is what I love about this because the world we live in at the moment, we were chatting about this today. So, we're talking about should we listen to podcasts on times three speed so we can listen to more podcasts, right? <laughs> and Jordan Peterson, who's this really clever dude, um, one of the cleverest guys in the world, allegedly watches The Simpsons at times three because he gets more episodes, but you lose. Depth of anything. If you look at things too quickly, so the stories you get from people when you actually take the time to speak to them. Because I've spoken mm-hmm. to you on quite a lot of occasions, but never knew that. And these are the things that kind of shape us, whatever age we are. At my wife and I, Alice was five months pregnant with my eldest when we were in 9/11. We were in LA really, and we were flying American Airlines, uh, United Airlines that day to Vegas. And I remember like the phone in home and they're trying to get through And all the carnage of that stuff. Mm. And so so you so you've lived in lots of different places, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is why you've got a broader view of the world.
1: Probably. Um and I think, you know, look, I kind of don't take it for granted and kind of in terms of what I've learnt, what I've learnt about different cultures, um, you know, it's been a, an incredible experience. What's the best place you've lived? In?
0: Don't say bunny in Nottinghamshire. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not Nottingshire. Oh, I think it was Singapore. Right. Um, I think it was probably by then I was like literally getting into sport, I, I suppose, quite, quite heavily. Um, we went to an international school there and it, the opportunities, if you were sporty, were incredible. Um,
0: what did and- you start and what was your first sport? Swimming?
1: Ah, uh, uh, competitively. But yeah, I suppose I was brought up on water sports. My dad's a very keen sailor. So oh. we were bought dinghies and we raced and which then transitioned to windsurfing, um, which obviously led to swimming. You had to swim to be able to do those sports or you needed to swim. Um, Yeah, and it just kind of like grew arms and legs. And then every place that I kind of either went to live or different schools, um, I kind of wanted to try them all. And I did, you know.
0: That's like, because there's different schools of thoughts on this, aren't there? But one of the things is that is one of the schools of thoughts to produce the athlete in the end is to is to have this broad range, right? That creates strength and fitness and balance and all of that stuff and engines and stuff. Hundred
1: percent. There's enough research now to kind of you know substantiate what you, what yeah. you're describing there and i think you know if i look at my own history but others that have been successful highly successful you know you often see a pattern of exactly that yeah. they've tried all sorts of different sports been exposed to different skill sets you know whether it's uh, hand eye coordination uh, uh running long distances sprinting whatever
0: i i can t- totally transpose that into sort of my professional world because I've had the conversation with people about that today because I'm, I'm going to say specialist in inverted commas, not actually in inverted commas. I have the title like that. But that's, there was this big jump trend over two decades to get everybody who was micro-specialising, and it's rubbish. Mm. Because when I see people, you know, I see people in, in clinic and new patients a lot of the time, and they're not, they're not a single specialist problem.
1: Yeah. You
0: need a massive broad look at them. And it's the same as young people who I've seen that are good at sport, love sport and are are happy to try any aspect of sport and they can do things like balance on one leg and they have they can do a plank mm. and stuff like that whereas because mm-hmm. i coach my son's i'm I'm a football coach by default and um, i don't know anything about football i never played it but the the guys like you you see this in, in where we live in west bridgeford it's like there's loads of guys that just like they batter their son to or their daughter now to death to try and make them into the next mbappe or ronaldo or whatever and they and they're you know there's they've been additionally coached on a Saturday when they're seven and they're being this I and mean, that one. What they should be doing is riding their bike and swimming yeah. and running and playing golf and playing yeah. tennis. and you know. Yeah. I'm
1: making it fun. Yeah, yeah just enjoying <laughs> it
0: because you can't kill yourself forever. Well, I don't know. They managed to do <laughs> with Andre Agassiz and the Williams sisters, so I guess that's what they're <laughs> that's trying true. to chase though. Yeah, isn't yeah. It?
1: No, definitely. But I think you know, there's, there's uh, synergies there too. I suppose if I look at my professional career as well, I'd say I'm, I'm not an expert in anything. Brutely, yeah. Uh but I kind of I've had such a broad range of experiences, but I ultimately know enough to be able to ask the right question at the right time but of the
0: experts. So there's now a movement. There's a guy called David Epstein who's written a book in the last couple of years called Range. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't yeah, it? it? When is. you when you it's an eye opening thing about about the the rebirth of the journalist, mm-hmm. right? So journalists dictate what specialists do, don't they? Yep, hundred percent. And and that's what that's your work. And we'll get to that in a minute, right? So back, let's go back. Hold on to that, because all yep. the really interesting questions are still back in the past. Right? <laughs> so so we living in Singapore. What age were you then?
1: Oh, uh, now you're testing me. Probably
0: oh, early teens.
1: The, yeah, early teens, twelve, thirteen.
0: Okay, so at some point you came back to the UK.
1: Yep. Uh came back when I was 14 with my sister to and, um, go to, our, to, to a boarding school, basically. My, right. my parents weren't quite sure where they were going next. And, you know, I was about to enter my O-levels. That gives away my age. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they wanted a bit of stability yeah. at that point from an education. Where was the boarding school? Um, Warminster in Wiltshire.
0: Right, OK. Yeah. And was that good?
1: It was, actually. Yeah. It was
0: really good. It's about Harry Potter?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was.
0: And so... <laughs> So, Stephen, I've read Stephen Fry's biographies and he, his recollection of, despite the fact that he was abused, mm. um, his recollection of school, of of boarding school was really positive. He's really loved it.
1: Right? I, I did. Yeah? I did. I mean, if you ask my sister, it might be a different story. Right, okay. Is but she older or younger? She's younger. Right. Yeah. What does she do? Um, She went into Tanner Country Planning. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And sort of, um, yeah, set up her own business. And, and was did she that. in sport? She dabbled in sport, is probably how I'd phrase it. She's a keen sports person, but was never really as passionate or threw herself in into it as much as I did.
0: And so when you came out of school and you went to university to do your business degree,
1: yeah? Uh, it's sports science. Sports, sorry. It's sports initially. science. You did do sports science. Yeah. That's
0: right. And then, because you yeah. loved sport. Yeah. And that was the subject to do. And you did that. Did you do that at Loughborough? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. So that,
1: yeah. Well, I went to Warwick University initially. I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. But after a year, I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. Um, so that's I mean I went went came to Loughborough and did a school. So you changed degree.
0: after your first year of university. Yeah. So that's quite telling, isn't it, in the whole atypical pathway thing? Because the atypical pathway success story and usually involves people that say and pardon my French, that they'd go, um, I'll try that thing, no fuck that, I hate it, I'm doing something else, right? <laughs> so there's a degree of disagreeability in that individual that changes. Tank. Yeah, and we had a chat in the kitchen, didn't we, about mm. both of us not knowing what we wanted to do when we grew up. Yeah, uh-huh. right. Mhm. Uh-huh. And that's don't. the typical person does that. And yeah. I find the people I talk to, like episode three, last one, government, you know, is issue for life. No, absolutely, I don't know what I'm going to do next. You know, I'll go somewhere else. I'll do this. I'll do that because yeah. it's about the adventure. Yeah, and they tend to be detached, also, not entirely a lot of the time, but detached from the the necessity to earn as much money as possible because that's not generally the main driving force of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's definitely from our conversation has been the same for you. 100%. And that's the same for me, right? So, so at the stage where you went to um, sports science at Loughborough, you were a triathlete. Yes At a pretty good level Yes But triathlon was At that stage One of these Quite niche sports Wasn't it Yeah very much so So Um, that was a Dave Scott era And all that Wasn't it Those guys (laughs) Who were racing Racing the swimming trunks That's the one
1: Speedos (laughs) and big glasses And helmets (laughs) that didn't fit Some great photographs
0: There was that epic battle In Kona Wasn't it where the two of them Crawled across the line together Where everybody that knew About triathlon knew that But triathlon was then Where kind of road cycling Was probably 10 years Before that Yeah Because it was like Just local niche people that did I mean, road cycling was like a working man's sport then, wasn't it? It was a 10-mile time trial. Very much so. And the the Yellow Pages advert with the boy wanting a bike with a saddle (laughs) on it. Do you remember that?
1: (laughs) I do. That's our age.
0: Just. just. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can remember it well. So you you were developing your endurance engine through triathlon. How was your swimming?
1: It was good. Um, I think, you know... Probably the real foundation of my swimming came from Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the swimming club. We actually had a coach there that had just missed out on the Montreal Olympics. So, you know, his background and pedigree and also just his coaching, I suppose, style and background kind of really, really gave me insight as to what it what it needed. I mean, I was never going to be a top, top swimmer, but I, I could hold my own, basically, mm. particularly in triathlon. yeah and so, so, so yeah. and when did
0: you ride a bike when did you
1: start started oh, I look I got my first bike when I was um my first road bike um when I was in Singapore I mean I had bikes all through my childhood but I never trained as you know training I just loved enjoying riding my bike and going and exploring um and then I bought a second hand bike actually that, re- that reminds me when I was doing my degree I was like oh I think I might give this triathlon lark a bit of a go and a few people I knew cycled, and uh, they pointed me in the right direction. I bought a second-hand bike, um, Specialized Alley Epic, I think oh, it was an Alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's what got me started. And it wasn't really until I graduated, and this is the next part of the story, I went um, and joined the police. Yeah, and I did a little bit more triathlon there. Um, why did you join the police? Why? I didn't know what I wanted to do. For a job. <laughs> yeah, I suppose back then, um, sports science, there there wasn't as many opportunities as there mm. are now. Um, in my mind, you either went on and did a PhD and kind of went down the research route or I think there was limited opportunities. Yeah. Um, and you ended up probably working in the gym as a glorified cleaner. And yeah. again, Sarah speak here, and I, neither of which I wanted to do. So I had a few friends in the police and I was like, oh, that looks quite exciting. Yeah. It's... um. Yeah, it, the, again, I didn't see it as something that was nine to five. It was pretty different. different. Everything and, was and, different.
0: So that was, while you were in that, then that was when you were in inverted commas discovered, wasn't it? Mm. So that, you need to recount that story because this is what happens because... I, I think from speaking to people like this, is that the guys who, if you give me a story about how he was discovered by a mentor, by somebody who then pushed him in the right direction or pushed him in the direction he's now in, mm. I guess the same thing can happen to me. And then, but to you, and I, we've talked, you've told me that story before, but if you tell it, tell it to the microphone. <laughs> what happened?
1: Tell it to the microphone. Well, it was the start of being discovered, is probably how I'd phrase it. Um, there was a little bit of a blip um, before being discovered. And I think it was a combination of, I was full. I was in full-time work, doing full-time shift work. I was training myself. I didn't have a coach. Um, I was battering myself. Being brutally honest with you, and I didn't have enough recovery. I ended up with um, overtraining syndrome yeah. or chronic fatigue, for want yeah. of a better word. Um, it took quite a while, I suppose, in some ways, to have it sort of diagnosed and a, a, a you know something named, or this is what I was. I was. Um, yeah, uh, I suppose experiencing. Um, and at the same time, I was questioning the long-term-ism of staying in the police. Yeah. So um, I made the decision to finish at the police, took a career break, um, and I ended up going back to university to do a master's in mm-hmm. sports science. Yeah. But at the same time, I'd literally just been diagnosed with chronic fatigue. And for want of a better word, I was, I was absolutely um, empty. So for a year during my master's, all I could do was focus on my study. I didn't train at all. Um, and it was probably at the back end of 10 months or so. Uh, I was really fortunate to kind of get hooked up to a doctor who worked for British triathlon at the time, who then sort of, um, referred me on to someone or a doctor in the space of chronic fatigue that helped me come back, um, and go through sort of a rehabilitation return to sport, you know, protocol program to get me back on a bike and bike, the bike was part of my rehab. So I started off every second day on a turbo trainer, no more than 10 minutes, Mm. 120 beats a minute. I can remember having this conversation with him going, why bother? Mm -hmm. Why why bother getting changed sort of thing? And I was like, Sarah, do you want to start somewhere? Mm -hmm. So, um, that's where we started and, you know, fast forward, um, I very quickly built up, you know, training volume, load, et cetera. And, uh, I knew that I probably wasn't going to go back to triathlon. Mm -hmm. The sport of triathlon had changed. It'd become more of a foot race. Um yeah. I could run, but not fast enough. Being yeah, brutal, yeah.
0: you have to really do a sub 10 Correct, correct. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that wasn't me. Yeah, you know, I could be competitive, but I was never going to be, you know, top of the world again. So another good friend of mine said, "Why don't you ever go at road racing? Because it's always my strongest discipline." And I was like, "Yeah, all right then." Um, and and I literally entered a few national series races in this country. Um, won one and got second, Unbeknown to me. Um. Someone had almost I suppose talent spotted me. Uh, and I got a phone call probably about a week later from um, British Cycling yep. saying we'd like you to come up and Love this. Uh, <laughs> <This is awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> we'd like you to come up and um, we just want to do we want to do a rig test or mm-hmm. a cycle to exhaustion, basically. Mm-hmm. I was like, Okay. So I was writing up my dissertation at that point, trekked myself up to Manchester, um, did this cycle to exhaustion. This is when Oh, late 90s. Oh. Yeah, late 90s, 97. Yeah. 1997. Um, did it, kind of came away, none the wiser from being, again, from being brutally honest with you. They didn't really give me any feedback, whether it was good, bad or indifferent. A week later, I got another phone call saying, we'd like to select you for the 1998 Commonwealth Games. <laughs> 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 and I, I can still remember that conversation. I'm so
0: sure that's going to happen to me.
1: <laughs> I'm sure it is, Colin. <laughs> Never give up that dream. Where was, it was the
0: 1998 games? Kuala Lumpur. Off.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's how it happened. Um, it, it literally happened like that. Whether would it, would it happen again like that nowadays? Probably
0: not. But look,
1: you know, um, so you went
0: from '98 in Kuala Lumpur, you went to Sydney mm. for GB. Yeah, right. So you went for England and Kuala Lumpur. So unbeknownst to you, as we get to the other end of the story, your first Commonwealth Games was in 1998. Yes. And then you're, obviously, you've been involved recently with the game. Were you involved with the games recently with cycling? Uh, Only from an ambassador point of view?
1: Yeah, from ambassadorial review. But
0: but you, so you went from 1998 and we'll talk about um, Gold Coast as we get to the other side of things. So you've got a long history with the Commonwealth Games, right? Yeah. So you went to Sydney in in two thousand. That's just, I mean, that's just extraordinary. Right. So you became a full blown Olympic athlete in two thousand, and you also went to to, to Athens in oh four. Yeah. And so this is when race cycling, this is when it started to happen. Mm. You know, Athens was a big big warship, wasn't yeah. it? That was when like Chris Hoy won the kilo and all that, wasn't that's it? Right. It was a big deal. Yeah. And you're in the midst of all of this in the village with these people and you're right in the rebirth of British cycling mm. or, or in the birth of... yeah birth of, I would say. Like, yeah, of what yeah. was happening there. And then, and you also went to, you went to the uh, Worlds as well. Yeah. On the multiple, track.
1: Multiple World Championships.
0: So you were on the road both olympics
1: yeah uh rode both olympics um i tried to transition over to track in between sydney and um athens uh cut a long story short i ended up with a prolapse disc Uh, my times were coming down i picked up this injury and it was probably about 12 months out from athens um and i knew that by the time i can have you know, worked on my back, et cetera. I probably wasn't gonna be able to get into the fold of the the times needed for individual pursuit. So I reverted back to road. I mean I would have wanted to have doubled up, but I knew that I could get a place in the road team. Mm-hmm. Um so I unfortunately I had to give up the dream of um the track. Right. The track.
0: Okay. This is the story of an athlete though, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Always on the edge of injury. Yeah. Yeah. And um and so that so then you effectively you 0-4, you, I, re-
1: that... I retired the first time in
0: life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> retired from that side. You transitioned to another part of life in yeah. 04. Yeah. Hi, guys. If you're interested in starting out in your implant career um, and are looking for a place to start to give you a fabulous grounding in the straightforward aspects of implant dentistry to move you along into a life of really satisfying and fulfilling implant dentistry, then why not think about exploring the Campbell Academy year one implant course which starts in January 2023 And so after 04 what happened?
1: Um I didn't know what I wanted to do yeah. <laughs> You always think you might but um look I could have probably gone on physically but mentally I was just ready to I'd done I'd had a- brilliant six years living the life and dream of a full-time athlete i explored a few opportunities in the sports world and i went through a few interviews got offered a few jobs but uh, at the time i was like this doesn't feel right i just i needed a break from the sporting environment so i I won't kind of give the whole story away but i um i ended up getting my job my next job via ebay (laughs) <laughs> and i went worked... in the
0: mid noughties as well cuz yeah wow yeah okay.
1: yeah yeah i basically met someone through ebay uh who it sounds a bit of a weird story and i really won't digress too much but basically it led to a job opportunity working down in the city um for Zurich Global Insurance yeah. um working with FTSE 100 companies i did not know what i was doing but look um this guy he basically opened some doors for me, offered me an opportunity and I grabbed it with both hands.
0: I want to go back for a step though just for a minute. So you might not answer this question, you might bounce this one, (laughs) which is totally fine, by the way, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I I often go back to this thing um, that Lance Armstrong said, so we are allowed to talk about him now because the pain's worn off a little bit, (laughs) Um, but um, that all endurance athletes are running away from something. Yeah. So what were you running away from?
1: (sighs) Oh gosh! Uh what was I running away from? normality
0: yeah mm. the fear of engine well,
1: no, <laughs> no i I just kind of recognize I, I I'm quite happy to talk about it. I just don't I don't want to settle for routine. I like variety. um I don't like knowing what's going to happen the next hour, tomorrow, the next week. And in, in some ways that probably explains a little bit of what and why I've done what I've done over mm-hmm. my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Cause I, I can, i I, so I'm a low level endurance athlete, but I keep doing these things. I hurt myself. And like yeah. my wife will say, I don't understand why you do that. Like you yeah. we were talking about that. And I was saying, we don't have to understand it. You just support it. Yeah. You know? and, um, and, and I got an idea of what I'm running away from, but I'm not telling you cause it's nobody's business. <laughs> but uh No, I, I'll, so when somebody interviews me, I'll tell them, but, um, Okay, that so we, I just was interested to see if mm. you could identify what that was because you still do things even a couple of weeks ago, mm. which are quite frankly fucking ridiculous, <laughs> like hundred and thirty-five miles in a day of day, two or three days of riding, yeah. and most of it on track, and that's just crazy to what are you playing at, right? So, um, but that so there's still the urge to, to push yourself to the past the point of no return, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so you've worked in the city, you're, it's all four or five, and you're in the city, and and you're about to go. Stratospheric to Canary Wharf and be an MD of a, of a CEO, right? And so then all of a sudden it's changed again.
1: Yeah, I think probably after about 18, 24 months, I was I don't know, I just kept on looking over the fence of what was happening in the sporting world. It's it's a bit like a drug, isn't it? I think once you've kind of
0: Yeah, experienced
1: experienced it, competed at the highest level you possibly can. I, I just spotted an opportunity in in UK sport, who's the funding quango in this yeah. country. Um and I was like, oh, that looks quite interesting. It was a performance advisor role. It was basically an account manager. And that's what I was doing in the insurance world. And it was similar, but in a sporting context. you were working with a portfolio of sports, working with CEOs, performance directors. um, And in some ways, there was a massive injection of funding into the system, something like $350 which was... um, Uh, I suppose starting off little sports in the view of qualifying for London 2012 and that's the bit where I learned the most so it ranged from working with the larger sports to actually starting up companies for want of a better word you're writing their strategies their performance Mm -hmm. plans recruiting their first head coach uh, identifying their first set of athletes relocating their staff and athletes to a centre wrapping around sports science services and then kind of helping support them qualify for the London Olympics. And
0: so when we met, you were preparing to, to perform and yeah. manage to perform and support archery yeah. in London. Yeah? So that yeah. was your first big performance director gig. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so to be part of London 2012 must have been just amazing. Oh,
1: it was. I mean, I think it was the first time I felt proud to be British. You know, I genuinely do. Did me too.
0: Yeah,
1: no, <laughs> no. I mean, it was, it was. I mean, the the atmosphere and the way they delivered the games, oh, and, unbelievable. Yeah, I still pinch myself. That was part of it.
0: So that's when. So that's when I I saw so we I knew you up to that point, and then we kind of parted ways for a while. But then all of a sudden, you were um, you came out of archery. So so before we get to netball, you've archery, boxing, you were BMX, skateboarding, skateboarding. Yeah. Anything else before that? no netball right so one of the things one it must go down as one of your greatest achievements the netball thing right mm. so mm-hmm. to take the, the england netball team to the to the gold coast which was in 16 uh 18 18 18 it was right yeah so to be the performance director right, to the them to the gold coast And for the first time they ever won the gold medal to beat Australia in the final and all the manner in which that happened. And that was big news. That did a massive amount for netball, a huge amount for the Roses, didn't it?
1: Yeah, it did. It transitioned the sport in terms of profile, partnership opportunities to increase a membership you know it, it was tenfold
0: yeah so that you I mean that that in itself is just an, to have achieved that is enough mm. to have achieved and, and, and an extraordinary thing and so that then moved you on to another chapter which i was just reading some of the back clippings about because you went into that you went into athletics didn't you yeah with your with your co conspirators from netball yep. yeah and that ended after about 13 months yeah in a flurry of horrible press stuff Yeah, yeah. Which which misrepresented the situation quite a large way, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's probably best we don't talk about that and else we get sued by UK Athletics. Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've spoken to you about that, obviously. So what what I read and read in the paper Mm. does not in any way represent the person that I understand who slept on a mattress outside the player's Dorm in, in, in the Gold Coast So that yeah. they could have a bed yeah. So this business about somebody who's an aloof performance director Who doesn't get involved with their athletes mm. Was ludicrous, clearly mm. Because you are so into the athletes And mm. into the athletes' welfare And have always been like that mm. But that's clearly somebody who's writing something to cover up something else
1: Yeah, look, look Everyone's got entitled to their opinion But it
0: worked out well
1: Oh, it did um, I mean, look I don't regret that juncture in my career I learnt lots uh, But I also learnt that uh, If you don't enjoy something change it yeah um and ultimately that's what i did i should have been in that board (laughs) meeting. but um
0: (laughs) i wasn't there to the end but uh, i know the real story Well, that's what i read into it yeah yeah because before that i know that you had been interested in going back to cycling because that Mm -hmm. was kind of like a real that would like complete the circle to a degree and so you could go to Mm -hmm. that end of cycling to become from an athlete that was in there into being a performance director and so now your role is now director of Olympic performance, Olympic and Paralympic performance for Bryce Cycling. Yep. So that's an extraordinary level role, yeah? Yeah. And so you're tasked with achieving Mm. this ridiculous targeted medal goal in Paris, Mm. Mm. because that's really how your success will be judged, isn't it?
1: Yeah, ultimately, that's that's what you sign up to with UK sport. You know, you set targets on a yearly basis, but ultimately, you know, what are you going to deliver at the end in the Olympics and Paralympics? And so you
0: have... BMX and road cycling and track cycling and mountain biking. Yep, all wrapped into that. Yeah? Seven disciplines. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you have to try and help that, well, that bunch of cats. Yeah. them yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a it's a big operation. Um, you know, and every single discipline's got its own little culture. Um, there's all sorts of manner of human dynamics playing out in that space, and then you've got the whole innovation piece as well. Um, around technology equipment to try and deliver against for certain categories at certain points.
0: And so it never gets easier, does it? No. <laughs> and so on the wall out here where the bikes hang up is that Greg LeMond quote about it, it doesn't get easier, you just get faster, right? And that's what happens, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're and right. So what is, because Nancy's going to tell me that one, are running out of time, it's an extraordinary story, right? Which is, And the reason I would, I would never ask anybody to sit opposite here that didn't completely inspire me, right? And so that's so if we don't have a guest, then we don't do one because I'm not time, I'm just going to put people in for any reason. But I have an idea from the, lim- the limited amount of knowledge that I have about your backstory about things that were the most challenging junctures in this journey. What what would you say is the, has been the most challenging thing to deal with?
1: Uh, oh, it's been a couple of things. I think you know. Look, every time you do something for the first time, it it's kind of takes you out of your comfort zone. So when you have to move people along. As an example, from a performance management perspective to in netball, we had a, we had a player mutiny at one point, early doors, in terms of them not wanting to do what we set out and what we needed to do to be able to deliver against success. Uh, uh, there's, look, there's been, uh, been loads, but those are probably the two biggest things that stick out. Because
0: when you entered, then this is another question you may not answer, when you first walked into the job of recycling, mm. you had an issue to deal with, mm. yeah, and so the, the most difficult parts of leadership are when you're whatever route you take, you're gonna to really top somebody. Yep. Right? And deciding what is the right thing to do in your eyes. And you get to decide that because you're in a role. Because everybody thinks there's always a right or a wrong, isn't there? But you had to deal with the issue of transgender mm-hmm. sport and your policy mm-hmm. towards that, didn't you? Mm-hmm. In a world where governing bodies were starting some were starting to take a line on that and yep. others were not. Yeah. And you had you had that fell on your desk, didn't it?
1: It wasn't necessarily, it was on the performance director's desk, but um, my, my kind of role and part in it was, I was asked by ex-Olympic cyclists to, whether I would want to sign up to a letter that went to the UCI, which is the International Federation. Um, and, I, you know, I had to walk a delicate line. I was an employee of British Cycling. They had their own policy in place. The UCI had their own policy in place. Um but I, I, I felt, I, f- I felt, and I still feel quite strongly on the subject. And I felt I wanted to do it as an individual. Mm. Um, so I kind of made a decision to sign up uh, to that letter that was submitted to UCI.
0: Because you have to, you have to be able to go to bed at night and sleep yeah. and know that you've done what you believe is right, don't yeah. you? And yeah. that's where leadership becomes really difficult, isn't it? Because ultimately, you have to. There are, there are decisions you have to do, and conversations you have to you have, and stands you, you have to take. Mm which are really uncomfortable Mm. and make you uncomfortable, but you have to have your values in place.
1: Yeah. And I think you grow as you get older, possibly, probably you start to really form stronger opinions about certain things. And this is one of the areas that, or one of the subjects that I felt pretty strongly about.
0: And also for you, it's all right, isn't it? Because you've got such a brilliant pathway through your career that if something goes wrong there, well, fuck it. You'll just do something else. Yep. (laughs) Kanye West had a, I like this little thing. It's, it, there's a concept that he has which it doesn't necessarily relate to money but at least the money for him. many so he calls it fuck you cash so he has a load of fuck you cash <laughs> so he basically he can just go he can do what he likes because they've got all this money in the bank but when you detach yourself from needing ludicrous amounts of money you're always going to be all right for your next meal mm. and i think that allows you a it makes it somewhat easier to mm-hmm. make the difficult decisions because you can do them without worrying about how you're going to feed yourself tomorrow yeah you know and i think that's a type of fuck you cash which is really useful I like that <laughs> you can have it but you can you might come after you but he's probably be president of the United States before then he would be distracted mm. so last thing okay and it's a question that we ask everybody at the end of the podcast alright so I, I, your story's inspirational and you're going to speak to some guys who are practice you're also coming back talking about business course and I'm so grateful that you come right and if, if nobody turns up and I'm the only one listening I'm delighted with that because it's inspired <laughs> me to be better at various aspects of what I do but but if you now, um, sitting here with all the knowledge and wisdom that you now have from the experiences you have, if you had the opportunity to sit across the table and talk to your 21-year-old self, what is the one piece of advice that you would give them? Gosh,
1: there was three things that went through my my mind then. You I'm can not, have all three. Can I? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, don't look back. Always look forward. Don't have any regrets. And keep it simple.
0: Okay. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Not at all. Pleasure.
0: Blame me. So I knew some of those stories but not all of those stories and it's such a pleasure to speak to someone who's so inspirational but so humble but also Sarah was so honest with us about some of the ups and downs that she's had through her career and I really hope that you're able to take that as some part of little inspiration into your day or into your week and just learn a little bit to make you feel a little bit better because I know that I will and um, thank you so much for taking the time to listen and we'll see you next time.